If you have your Bible tonight, I do want you to turn with me to a chapter that I have been wanting to avoid. Many months ago, when I decided that I want to set out and just really preach through the book of Revelation, the very first thing in my mind was, okay, how are you going to deal with chapter 9? Because so much of chapter 9, if we were to just be honest, it is strange. There are some things being described in this ninth chapter that stretch the imagination to its limits. And I must confess that I'm just like you in this respect. When I read something like this, the first thing that often happens is that my imagination begins to run wild. Now, I do believe that we've been given an imagination as part of our design and that we shouldn't stifle creativity or our imagination. However, just like every other part of us, our imagination has been affected by the fall. And so we don't want to let the best of our imagination uh, get us when we come to a passage of Scripture like this and force upon the text something that the text does not say. And I think that's a very important principle to keep in mind as, well, really, when you read and study and preach and teach the Bible, no matter where you are, you know, sound Scripture interpretation means that you pretty much just let the text say what the text says. And so that's what we're going to do tonight. Yet I do believe, even though I've wanted to avoid this chapter, as I've been studying this chapter and spending time with the Lord and just reading, and, 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 and I believe there's some wonderful principles here that we can lift from the text, that we can take, that we can apply to our Christian experience, and really the way that God works uh, as far as his redemptive purposes are concerned. Now, I know more than one person has come away from this text, maybe scratching their head, wondering what exactly John is describing here. Now, keep in mind, by way of context, where we are in our study of Revelation, we are at the trumpet judgments. The seventh seal, when it was broken, uh, opened by the Lamb, that gave way to the seven trumpet judgments, four of which we considered from the eighth chapter. And if the first four trumpet judgments involve disturbances as far as the natural order of things is concerned, the created order, then what's described with these remaining three trumpets really describes something in the supernatural order. And keep in mind that there is a spiritual element and there's, there's a lot of speculation about what's symbolic, what to take literal, uh, what to see as being figurative, and I respect a variety of interpretations that scholars have put forth, but I want to just simply let the text say what the text says, and I think that that's the best way to, uh, to approach the scriptures. So why don't we just read the text first, and then you'll, if you've not read it before, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about, okay? Revelation chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. The scripture says that the fifth angel blew his trumpet. John says, I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace, 
And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads, which, again, if you go back to chapter 7, we saw all the 144,000 of Israel who were sealed, and so we understand who this is referring to here in verse 4. And these locusts were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. Imagine a flying scorpion. You ever been stung by a scorpion? I'll never forget, uh, we were clearing some land at my, our family property back in the mountains of Cherokee County, and I was just a boy, and I remember you know, my dad and my granddad, of course, we'd go into the woods, we'd always have to wear you know, pants, boots, long sleeve shirt, even in the middle of the summer. Why? Because there were snakes and there were scorpions. But I remember a scorpion getting somehow in the sleeve of my dad's shirt and stinging him on his forearm and it swelling up and him just being in so much pain. Now imagine that multiplied many, many times over. That's what's being described here. So these scorpions were, or locusts were allowed to torment them for five months but not kill them. Their torment was like that of a scorpion. In those days, people will seek death and not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. Now, in appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces. Their hair like women's hair. Their teeth like iron's, lion's teeth. They had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. I'm going to tell you something. This is some kind of a critter that's being described here. I don't want to meet one of these. I think I have met one of their first cousins in the low country of South Carolina, where you know the state bird is the mosquito. But notice, this is something supernatural being described here. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, but in Greek he's called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur, and the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. 
For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. And the rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver, bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now, it's an interesting passage of Scripture that fires the imagination, and the imagination wants to run wild. But regardless of the details of what these future images mean, the overall picture, I believe, is clear. And it's simply this. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And so when you consider these trumpet judgments, keep in mind that judgment, this is something we noticed last week, but every act of judgment throughout redemptive history has been a preview of things to come. Now, you know that imagery around, you know, critters like locusts and that kind of thing, we read about that a lot in the Old Testament, don't we? I think about the eighth plague of the Egyptians. What we saw concerning a vision that the prophet Amos had in chapter 7 of his book concerning locusts. Or the prophet Joel talks about locusts. Locust plagues often were connected with the judgment of God in the Old Testament. All right, so you've got all of that in the Old Testament, and it dealt with very real specific issues, but in a very figurative way, it also pointed forward to a time of future judgment, which is going to be true during the tribulation period. So here in Revelation, we really see God using an intensifying series of judgments to capture the attention of the world, all for the sake of redemption. And so this, again, the world has not been, um, the world has been warned of all of this that's going to come in the last days. This is not without warning. Uh, God has been patient throughout man's history. There has been repeated warning after warning. There was the ministry of the prophets in the Old Testament, the apostles in the New Testament, the church era, the church age. The church is very much a prophetic voice in God's world today. You've got the message of the scriptures. You've got the warning of coming judgment. So don't think for one second that all of this is suddenly coming upon the world and God hasn't given sufficient warning because we know that he has. But as you're reading this text, I really believe that it has a lot to teach us about the subject of spiritual warfare, the reality of angels and the supernatural. And it's really a reminder of how the Bible shows us that there is more to life than what simply meets the eye. Now, I know that that sort of goes against modern sensibilities because the modern mind wants to reject that kind of idea and wants to opt instead for a completely secular worldview, which has become the predominant worldview in the West. Uh, in October of 2019, <clears throat> Pew Research released a news report and the title of which said that in the United States, decline of Christianity continues at a rapid pace. Research indicated that even though 65% of Americans identified as Christians when asked about their religion, it represented a decrease of 12% in just 10 years. One thing that we know that is happening in the Western world is that our world is becoming increasingly post-Christian. 
And there is a secular worldview that has replaced what was a nominal Christianity among some for so long. But now you have, you've got the new atheism and you have this naturalistic worldview, which is the predominant worldview that is taught across secular college campuses. And you have a generation who's now come of age who believes that the world around us can only and best be described in naturalistic terms to which the scriptures say that's not true. You cannot describe your existence in this world solely on the basis of naturalistic means. And the world wants to retreat into science as the answer for everything, the explanation for everything. But men and women, I want you to listen to me. Science is based upon objective fact and truth. It can only observe, but it can't tell you where that truth and where those laws which are fixed in nature, where they come from. Wherever you find a law, logic will tell you there must be a lawgiver somewhere. And so there are laws which govern man's world. There are laws which govern life in the universe. We need to ask the question, where do those laws come from? The best way to answer that question is a better question. Who do those laws come from? And the scripture says they come from the God who's created the natural order. The writer of Hebrews even tells us that you can't understand the world apart from faith in the unseen. You can't understand what is seen without an understanding of that which is unseen. It's by faith that we understand that the world which was made, it was made by things which were unseen. So there are unseen forces at work in the world around us. And keep in mind, this is something that you have to understand as you read and study through the book of Revelation. And so there may be an apprehension in our minds when we talk about, we take up a serious discussion on the subject of the supernatural, the existence of angels and demons and that kind of thing. But that's not to make you uneasy. It's simply to remind you of the facts. It's to remind you that we wrestle not against flesh and blood and our enemy is not flesh and blood, but there are unseen forces around us. And by the way, we dealt with a lot of this in our study through the book of Daniel. So again, these trumpet judgments, you'll notice that really verse 13 of chapter 8 sort of establishes where we are. The first four trumpet judgments have been sounded in chapter 8. John says that he hears a voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blast of the other trumpet judgments that the angels are about to blow. So there are three more woes to go two of which we see described here in this ninth chapter. Now, notice with me, number one, the reality of spiritual warfare. This is the first thing I want to really lift from this text, is this text establishes for us the reality of spiritual warfare. This is an important chapter because it helps us really see the spiritual dimension behind conflict in the world, which will come to a head in the tribulation period. You know, Mark talked about Russia and Ukraine, the situation there on the ground, and we observe nations that go to war with one another, that threaten to invade one another, but where ultimately is that conflict rooted? Where does it come from? You see it physically, but let me tell you, that conflict begins spiritually. 
And that's true for every conflict in man's world. Apply that to your life as an individual Christian. The resistance that you experience for the sake of your faith as a believer. The the resistance that comes at you. The moment you begin to take prayer seriously in your life. The moment you begin to say, you know what? I want to learn how to pray. And it just seems like everything gets thrown in your way. And all these excuses suddenly come up for why you can't pray. You start praying and man, the dog starts barking. The phone starts ringing. The doorbell starts going off. Isn't it an amazing thing how oftentimes conflict just kind of gets ramped up the moment you take spiritual things seriously in your life? Well, that's what you see happening here in this particular text. One of the reasons why conflict often takes us off guard is because we've come to expect something different in life, something else in life, when we need to expect conflict. It's par for the course as far as the Christian life is concerned. It's par for the course as far as life in a fallen world is concerned. So Chuck Swindoll says this about this passage. He says, as we study John's vision and we observe the armies of darkness battling in the future, we can better understand how similar spirits of wickedness try to torment us even today. Now, I believe that the church is going to be raptured before these events in this ninth chapter. However, the principle still applies. The enemy of the church, he wants to fight against the church, and so spiritual conflict, that's something we deal with every day. It's not just going to be true of the last days, but it's true of every day for the child of God. But now, this particular spiritual conflict, let's look at it specifically, and notice how it's under divine direction. Because verse 1 says that the fifth angel blew the trumpet and John saw that a star had fallen from heaven to earth. Now that word fallen there, it's in the perfect tense, which emphasizes it's an event in past time with continuing results. Which by the way, notice there's a difference between this star versus the star that's described in the previous chapter. In chapter 8, there's a star that's described as an it But here, there are personal pronouns applied to this fallen star. And the language is reminiscent of Luke chapter 10, where Jesus said something where he said, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And so I believe that the star that's being described here, this is none other than Satan himself. It's this fallen angel who's given the key to the bottomless pit. Some translations say the abyss. That word's the same word used in Luke's gospel account of where Jesus cast the demons out of a man. Remember uh, in Luke chapter 8, after the, the, the man was healed, Jesus asked him the question, what is your name? He said, legion, because many demons had entered the man, and those demons begged Jesus to not send them to the abyss, to not command them to depart into the abyss. So what happened in that text? Jesus cast the demons out of the man, and uh, they had asked permission to go into a herd of swine or pigs. And once the demons went into the pigs, those pigs went off a cliff and drowned in the sea. Listen, that is the first recorded time in history where you find deviled ham. (laughs) 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 
Y'all are waiting for something so profound right there. But, <laughs> but now think about it. Those demons go into those pigs and what immediately happens? There's destruction. The whole herd, those demons drive them to destruction. So demonic spirits want to possess so that they can destroy, oppress. And so that's what's happening here. In the last days, there will be increased spiritual attack, spiritual warfare, demonic activity bent on the destruction of humanity. Second Peter chapter 2, 4 talks about God who didn't spare angels when they sinned, but he cast them into hell and committed them to chains of darkness to be kept until judgment. Jude verse 6, angels who didn't stay within their own estate but left their proper dwelling, God has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day. So John sees that the pit is opened up associated with this fifth trumpet judgment and he sees smoke like that of a great furnace, smoke so thick that even the sun is darkened, the air is affected. From the smoke comes a plague of what can only be described as locusts which then flood the earth. And locusts, I said this a moment ago, but they're often associated with the judgment of God, especially in the Old Testament, in the agrarian society. You see it in Egypt, Exodus chapter 10, other places. But the thing to keep in mind is that this is under divine direction. It's God who's giving the command. It's God, listen, Luther said that Satan was God's devil. Don't ever think that the devil is on the same playing field as the omnipotent God because he's not. The devil is not omnipresent, God is. The devil is not omniscient, God is. The devil is not omnipotent, God is. The devil's a created being in rebellion. He's a defeated enemy and one day he's going to be cast into the lake of fire but somehow, as divine providence and the mystery of this would have it, he's God's devil. And he can't do anything without God's say-so and permission. You see this in the life of Job. You see this here in Revelation with the last days. So this spiritual warfare, ultimately it's under divine direction. But notice that these, these locusts which are released from the bottomless pit, they're bent on destruction. A plague of locusts might not seem like a big deal to us, but you see, to ancient Israel in those days, locusts would have been something catastrophic. I mean, a single swarm could strip a whole harvest in just a moment's time. It was something that those in an agrarian society were, were terrified of. And even now, in places around the world, like Africa, you still hear of locust plague. In fact, 2020, there was a major locust plague that made world headlines, only in 2020, by the way. Oh. In other words, a plague of locusts is still a big, big deal. All right, but these are no ordinary locusts that are being described here in, in, in the apocalypse. Notice their unusual description. These locusts described by John are fiends from hell. They don't come from the pit to eat the grass, but they come to gnaw on man. 
Specifically, they'll bring torment to those who don't have the seal of God on their foreheads. And you look at the way they're described there in verses 7 through 11. Now pay close attention to the repeated use of that word like. I, I, I counted up in my translation, there's at least 13 times that that word like is used. It's a word of comparison. So that word should serve as a clue that perhaps these aren't literal locusts as you and I are familiar with locusts, but this is some horde of malevolent spirits which will torment lost humanity in the last days. Now someone says, well, how will they do that? John sees them, but that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone else on earth sees these spirits. Perhaps they're still invisible. Or perhaps the way that they harm humanity is through the inventions that man has come up for, with him, you know, for himself. One thing that you see about judgment, keep in mind that oftentimes the judgment of God is simply, it's the consequences of man's sin. God has determined, he has judged that sin run a particular course. And where man is bent on going in direct opposition to God in his revealed will, the judgment of God means that man will experience the result of those sins. Folks, there are ideologies at work in our society that according to the judgment of God will lead to the complete collapse of our civilization and society that will lead to the destruction, not human flourishing, but, but the destruction of human society. And where does that find its origin? Where does, ultimately, where do those ideologies find their genesis? In the abyss. You understand? It's not just man coming up with ideas on his own, but the enemy's always been there, all, going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, offering a substitute savior, a substitute salvation, a substitute doctrine, a false doctrine that will lead to damnation and destruction. <laughs> so the lesson here is this, God is sovereign over the happenings of our lives and he will use any means necessary to achieve his purposes. God is in control. It may look like, I mean, hell unleashed on earth, but this is by divine decree. Doesn't mean that God is not, is not in control, wringing his hands, wondering what in the world's going on. No, God is the one who is directing the events themselves. He's giving the angels their directive. Now, notice the second thing, and it's the result of divine judgment. This passage, we can lift from this passage a principle of the reality of spiritual warfare. I think something else we can see is really the result of divine judgment. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's no light thing. The judgment of God is not something to yawn at. God intends for judgment to be something that is attention-grabbing. He intends for judgment to be something that really arrests our attention. It's almost like a, like a, like a red light of... Warning, don't go down this road. Careen through this intersection full speed at your own peril. And so the result, what's the result of the divine judgment? Well, you really see this. 
when that sixth trumpet judgment is blown there beginning in verse number 13. And notice it involves a couple of things. The first is principalities which will be released. John says, when the sixth angel blew his trumpet, I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God. So again, he's hearing something in heaven something that's going to happen in heaven that's going to have a direct result of what's going to happen on the earth. But this voice is saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who were bound at the great river Euphrates. So here you have these angels who are described as being bound or imprisoned at the river Euphrates. And the text says that they had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year. And they were released when God gave say-so. Now, I believe these are fallen angels because God's holy angels are never said to be bound. And so the idea is these four destroying angels are being kept prisoner until a specific time on God's calendar. Now, I'm, I'm convinced that the location here is very specific and very important, especially as far as the Middle Eastern world is concerned. Now, you know that many of the prophetic texts of the Bible, they all center around Israel and her neighbors. Now, you're aware of the fact that, especially in the last century, the Middle East has been a ticking time bomb. And it's a wonder it hasn't gone off yet, but the, the Middle East is a ticking time bomb. Here you have Israel, teeny tiny modern nation state, smaller than the state of New Jersey in terms of land mass, but literally surrounded by hostile neighbors for the most part. Uh, it, nations and peoples of those nations that are really um, um, influenced by a lot of Islamic ideology which is bent on the destruction of Israel. So geography, pay, pay attention to the geography here. The Euphrates River in history, it was a dividing line between the east and the west. It marked the ancient boundary of Rome and separated Rome from its eastern neighbors or nations. It was also a very important boundary in terms of Israel. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the enemies of God's people, they came from areas north and east of the Euphrates. And it was there at the Euphrates River that really you, you find the cradle of civilization itself. You go all the way back to the book of Genesis and you can discover the strategic importance of the Euphrates and the Tigris Rivers and the location of the Garden of God. So here you have four angels being bound at a very specific place to be released at a very specific time. Now I want to show you a map and I want you to pay close attention to the four nations of the world that immediately surround the area of the Euphrates and Tigris River. You've got Iran to the east, Iraq here to the south, Syria and Turkey. Turkey, Syria, Iraq, and Iran. Four major enemies now of Israel. And at least one of those nations in particular has a very hostile, apocalyptic doctrine that's bent upon the annihilation of Israel. 
And someone says, well, what in the world is it that's keeping these nations at bay now? Is it the United States? Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. It's divine say-so. Israel has a much bigger defender than the eagle of America. Why don't you listen to me? God may use America. And any time our nation thinks we're too big for our britches and too big for God, listen, God's going to get his work done with or without the United States. But I believe that it's the restraining grace of God that's keeping the Middle East from erupting in an all-out war. But one of these days, that restraining grace is going to be removed and the world is going to go to war. And so these four angels who are mentioned here in Revelation 9 could very well be the invisible influences behind Israel's enemies in the last days during the tribulation period. I said could be. We know that there's plenty of evidence from Scripture that demonic principalities and powers have stood behind world leaders and empires throughout history. Again, go to the book of Daniel chapter 10 and you can see this. In that passage, Daniel had been agonizing in prayer for three weeks over a vision that he had been given. And his prayer had been heard the moment he began to pray. But the answer was three weeks in getting to him, and the angel tells him in that passage that it was because there was a conflict being waged in the spiritual realm, in the heavenly places. Daniel's told in in Daniel 10, 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia. And I came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days. So it's, a, it's, a, it's principalities, the powers behind the powers that be, so to speak. So you say, is that... Do you see that anywhere else in Scripture? Well, think about the temptation narrative of Jesus in Matthew chapter 4. One of the temptations that, that Satan um, tries to tempt Jesus in the area of offering him the kingdoms of the world. All of these kingdoms I will give you if you'll just fall down and worship me. Why could he make that offer if he didn't have those kingdoms in his back pocket to begin with? Man's fallen kingdoms are under the direction and the influence of evil principalities. And I think that's what you see here in the ninth chapter of Revelation. The physical, visible realm is greatly affected by the spiritual, invisible realm, a realm that the Bible refers to as the heavenly places. That's why Ephesians chapter 6 tells us to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual host of evil in heavenly places. That's why you had better prioritize prayer in your life. Most important thing you can do for me as your pastor is to pray for me. Most important thing you can do for your Sunday school teacher is to pray for them. Most important thing you can do for your kids or your grandkids is to pray for them. Intercession, praying. Don't think for one second that it's a waste of time. No, listen, it's the work that God's called us to. Nothing of any spiritual value is accomplished in God's economy apart from the praying of God's people. 
So in this ninth chapter of Revelation, these four angels said to be bound at the river Euphrates may very well be those spiritual powers of wickedness that stand behind four of the Middle Eastern nations that will oppose God and his people in the last days. So, it's interesting. Now, not only do you see these principalities to be released, but what's the purpose? Ultimately, what purpose will be realized in their release? Well, let's not just say this tongue-in-cheek, but listen to this. Verse 18 says that they'll succeed in the purpose of killing a full one-third of mankind. So really from verse 15 to verse 18, you've got the details filled in of how they'll achieve that purpose. Verse 16, John sees that their destruction will come in the form of mounted troops twice 10,000 times 10,000. In case you're wondering, that's the largest number that's recorded in all of the Bible. You won't find a higher number anywhere in the 66 books of the Bible than this number. You do the math, you know how much it is? 200 million. It's almost an unthinkable number when you consider it. And it's really amazing when you consider the fact that scholars estimate that the population of the world in John's day was anywhere from 150 to 250 million people. (laughs) So John's seeing an army in his day that outnumbers the population of the world in his day. The world didn't reach one billion people until 1800. Did you know that? And by the way, it didn't reach two billion people until 1927. But within less than 100 years, the global population now is right at eight billion people. (laughs) We live in a remarkable time of history, men and women. And many say that by the year 2050, the world will hit 10 billion. We're living in a remarkable time. John sees a vast army somehow connected with the release of these four angels at the Euphrates and the number of mounted troops, it's 200 million. And by the way, there wasn't an army in the world that had that number of soldiers up until the 20th century. China now, I think, boasts of an army that large. But Custer himself couldn't have imagined such a cavalry here that's being described in chapter 9. Again, John is using the best language he can to describe what he sees in this vision. I think that you can't rule out the fact that he's seeing something supernatural too. If that's true for the locust described in the first part of the chapter, perhaps that same thing is true with this army in the last part of the chapter. But notice the language he uses. Even though the horses' heads look more like the heads of lions, he mentions nothing in particular about the riders except the color of their armor. The color of their breastplates match the color of the plagues that proceeded from the mouths, he says, of the horses. Fiery red or orange. Deep sapphire. What's the Greek word that's used there? It, is a, it actually is describing a deep blue kind of a color. Sulfuric yellow. According to verse 19, not only did the horses' mouths have power to inflict destruction, John even says that their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of these, they do harm. The locusts were bad, but man, these things are bad too. 
So you've got this chapter that's full of vivid, descriptive language, and we don't want to press the details any further than we should. But I don't think you can rule out a few things. Just, again, I think we can use our sanctified imagination here to the glory of God, okay? Imagine describing 21st century warfare with first century language. What would you describe? How would you describe it? Now, <laughs> artists have had a fun time with these images from this ninth chapter of Revelation. <laughs> Behold, I present you with the state bird of South Carolina. Right there he is. <laughs> but if you just take a strict literal rendering of what he's describing there in the first part of the chapter with the locust, that would seem to be it. That's a scary looking thing, right? Or the mounted troops that he describes in the last part of the chapter with horses, with the head of lions, with fire and sulfur coming from their mouths and tails with power and head. This only could be described in terms of a serpent with power in their heads. Just vivid, descriptive terms. Now listen to this. What if, how would you describe something like that with first century language? Or something like that with first century language? Or something like that with first century language? or something like that with first century language, multiplied many times over. Now again, I don't wanna press the details further than the details go, but folks, listen to me. Could it be that what John is being shown here is a picture of a final world war in the last days a supernaturally, demonically inspired conflict that will lead up to Armageddon itself, which, by the way, upwards of 40 million people died in World War I alone. That number was doubled in World War II, 80 million people. World War III, those numbers no doubt will be eclipsed many times over, especially when you consider the world's nuclear arsenal and all the destructive capabilities that the fallen kingdoms of man now have at their disposal. What will those kingdoms do when the principalities and powers behind those kingdoms are released to do their harm? We're living in a time, listen to me, when small men cast long shadows, you know that it's sunset. And we're living in a time when the leaders of the world are small men, men without character. And they cast mighty long shadows, don't they? Chuck Swindoll says it this way. He says, these demons may inflict their plagues directly and supernaturally, or they may use earthly means to do so. They may inspire the military divisions of certain nations. We can't absolutely be certain about the meaning of these visions, yet the picture remains clear. 
As the tribulation proceeds, the judgments will increase in severity. Tragic images fill our minds as we try to imagine the chaos and the confusion and the grief and the shock that will sweep the globe. What humans have experienced in natural disasters, military strikes, terrorist strikes, will be completely forgotten in light of these unparalleled events. You consider the fact that by the time that the sixth trumpet is blown, we can assume that nearly half the world's population will be sent to meet their maker in a time of unparalleled death and destruction. And the question arises, what about so many of the others who live? I'll be honest, I wish that the last two verses didn't say what they say, but the refusal of man's repentance, it's obvious The rest of mankind who weren't killed by these plagues, they didn't repent of the works of their hands or give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood which can't see or hear or walk. Neither did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. Now you'd think that the worse things get, the more sensitive people become to spiritual things. But sadly, that's not always the case. Death and pain only harden some people. I've heard it said that the same sun that melts the ice is the same sun that hardens the clay. You think about Pharaoh and the Exodus, all of the plagues that came to Egypt. And the scripture says that Pharaoh hardens his heart, and yet God is even sovereign behind it. And there are verses which say God hardens Pharaoh's heart. And yet Pharaoh's not without opportunity. The mystery is there. But free will is there, and yet Pharaoh hardens his heart, but it ultimately is going to serve the purposes of God. Even up until the very last plague, with the death of his firstborn. He pursues Moses and these Israelites, only to see his army drowned in the Red Sea as the result of the hardness of his own heart. Man's refusal to repent. You know, it's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. It's the goodness of God that leads to repentance. But in those days, people will buy into a lie. There'll be some type of explanation, no doubt, that they'll retreat into for the way things are. They'll harden their hearts yet again against the true God of heaven. They won't repent of their murders It's a word that means wanton disregard for human life. They won't repent of their sorceries. The word is pharmakia in Greek. It's the same word we get pharmacy from, pharmaceuticals from, mind-altering drugs and substances. They won't repent of their sexual immorality. The word is pornea. We get the word porn, pornography from. Thefts, taking from others what is not yours. Do not these sins plague humanity? But isn't God been good and given man ample opportunity to repent? Oh, such idolatry is not just true of the last days, but I'm telling you, it's true of every generation. And idolatry is not just an issue with unbelievers, but it's an issue even within the church. All the vain things which charm me most I sacrifice them to thy blood. 
Anything in your life that maybe the Holy Spirit has shown you, maybe that person, that possession, that position is more important to you than I am, God says. If so, it's the goodness of God that leads you to repent. Amen? Amen. Let's stand for prayer tonight. You know, once it dawns on you that we're literally surrounded by an invisible world of spiritual conflict, it'll forever change the way you see life. Yes, this present world system is under the influence of the evil one. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the power behind the cankered, corroded kingdoms of man. But greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. And there's a bright hope for the people of God. These trumpet judgments represent the logical consequences of sin and evil. And one day, God will turn evil on itself. And what is it that he's going to do? Afterwards, he's going to make all things new. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for your word tonight. And Lord, we tremble when we think about the reality of judgment or the reality of spiritual warfare God, may we prioritize prayer as your people much more. We're praying not just for the health of our loved ones. And God, I've heard it said that oftentimes our prayers often are more concerned about keeping saints out of heaven than sinners out of hell. Oh God, may we do some evangelistic praying. Praying for the darkness to be pushed back in high point in our neighborhoods. May we shine the light of Jesus, Lord, to those around us and point people to the hope that we have in him. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And this world is careening down death's highway. But you've given us a message of hope and life everlasting in Jesus. And so may we preach it, may we share it, may we show it. For Jesus' sake, amen.